Hey, hey, what do you say? This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill, and that's right. I am on Iron City Rock. Yeah, this is Joey Belladonna from Anthrax, and you listen to Iron City Rock. Hi, everyone. This is KK Downing, formerly of Judas Priest, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. So crank it up as loud as you can. Hello and welcome to episode 388 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 388, we are pleased to be joined by K.K. Downing, a founding member of Judas Priest. Uh, he's got a new book out called Heavy Duty Days and Nights in Judas Priest, so we're going to talk to him about that book in just a moment. Also joining us uh, from... The famous uh, Operation Mind Crime album. We have Sister Mary, Pamela Moore, uh, the voice behind Sister Mary, has got a great new album out. We're going to talk to her all about that, and we're also going to introduce you to uh, uh, kind of a full-on metal band. Everyone hates everything. We're going to be joined by their vocalist Paul. In just a little while to introduce them to you. But first, we're going to turn our attention to uh, KK Downing. Uh, KK, as many of you know, founded Judas Priest with uh, Rob, Glenn, and Ian. Um, and then left the band in 2011, retired uh, per se, decided to walk away from the band. Uh, and in September on the 18th, he will be releasing his memoirs, uh, Heavy Duty Days and Nights in Judas Priest. A fantastic read, I think, for anybody who's a fan of the band Judas Priest. Kind of eye-opening um, as he exposes some of the friction between uh, Glenn Tipton and himself. Talks about um, Rob leaving the band, Rob coming back to the band. Talks about Ripper, talks about uh, working with Scott Travis, uh, Priest Current Drummer, uh, you name it. He really covers the whole uh, gamut in the book. Uh, so it was a really interesting read, and I know that uh, you know many fans listen to the show, big Judas Priest fans, so I you know, certainly would think this would be a must-read as we head into fall. As the weather cools down, grab a book, uh, throw on uh, Screaming for Vengeance, and, and get reading this book when it comes out. So without further ado, we're going to talk to K.K. Downing. Kick to the night. No hesitating. 
Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome Iron City Rocks. We have on the line KK Downing. How are you doing, KK? Hey, John. Very good. Thank you very much. And hi to everyone out there in the Pittsburgh area. Well, it's awesome to talk to you. Um, just had an opportunity to read your new book, Heavy Duty Days and Nights in Judas Priest, um, which will be released on the 18th here in the United States. Um, can you talk about what what brought you to writing a book now? You know. Um, well, uh, it was just a, qu- a question of time, I think. I mean, um, I was probably averaging about a request um, maybe two or three times a year um, from certain uh, Book rights, and, right. um, and and I guess um, early last year I thought, you know, I thought maybe now is the time um, to to uh, to do something like that. You know, uh, I, I wasn't really um, didn't really think it out too much as to how it worked or mm-hmm. you know uh, and and everything. But um, I just thought, well, if I say yes, I guess I'll find out soon enough. Sure. Sure. So, um, were you a person who kept, you know, like a diary? You know, some musicians will keep pretty detailed stuff. Some people just, you know, try to remember things through the haze. Um, you know, how, when you went back and assembled some ideas, were there parts that maybe, you know, you didn't remember? You remember maybe through different eyes, you know, looking back? Yeah, definitely. No, I never kept any notes. As you say, a blur is a good word for it. The whole thing. You know, um, each tour morphed into one, and each album morphed into one. It was, um, sure. and uh, and it, it, it did get, and it, it still is today. You know, really, really quite cloudy. But going through the process of doing the book, it did help me to um, segregate certain periods of my life a little mm-hmm. bit more. It was. Um, wasn't the easiest thing I've ever tried to do when you try yeah. to really tax your memory you know right. as to as to um, all of the events and sets of circumstances it's so easy to miss something out you know and um, and obviously if someone were to comprehensively document their sure. their their life you know it, the book would probably be unreadable it would be that long mm-hmm when you look back, I mean, almost every rock and roll memoir starts out kind of the same way, you know, born. Uh, but your childhood was a little bit different than maybe the normal. I mean, we've read, you know, Tony Iommi and Ozzy Osbourne, and you know, a lot of people that grew up in the industrial area. But your family situation was maybe a little bit unique. You know, a lot of musicians come from, you know, mom was a piano player, dad played the violin. Your family situation very different. Um, can you talk maybe about how painful that some of those memories were? Yeah, it was. <laughs> anything. Um, <clears throat> everything was pretty much null and void. You know. Um, Even 
you know, incarcerated or whatever, anything could have happened. But, you know, I found music and um, music became pretty much kind of say, you know, religion for me. And, um, and it was my saving grace, really, because what I saw in that and, uh, and my life pursuing uh, music as a fan uh, it gave me hope and direction and, you know, enthusiasm. And um, it took me to places where I probably wouldn't ordinarily have gone, really, sure. you know. Um, so, and obviously, it, um, it prompted me to mix with certain type of people that saw a value in, you know, in, in, in music, which is something that's very artistic, as opposed to hanging around with kids that were maybe interested in other things you know mm. um not so nice things you know i mean can i call music nice I, I think that music is something because um i think if you appreciate it you're a kind of a certain type of person you know um well lots of youngsters who probably don't have too much interest in the arts they kind of go a different direction which could have happened to me really if i hadn't have discovered something as as wonderful and as magical as um as the styles of music that i was really really into yeah can you touch a little bit i mean i know one of the things you speak with great reverence is is your exposure to Jimi hendrix um can you just give us a little taste for those who haven't read this yet about what that was like seeing jimmy in those days yeah i think it was um <clears throat> It was just one of those magical things, you know. I first went along to my first experience was obviously uh, you start with the blues, John Mel's Blues Breakers, and you know, and then you find out about the Cream and you know uh, with Clapton and Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker and that, and it and it's all good. You start to go to a few gigs. Uh, I didn't have money to go to gigs, you know. Mm -hmm. We used to sneak in, and I think I'll tell about that in the book. Sure. And to see Hendrix, really, in a theatre in Coventry all those years ago, I think it was 1967, the first time, um, you know, we sneaked into the gig through the fire escapes and stuff. But, um, but yeah, he, he hit the stage, and there was magical ingredients, you know, apart from his incredible performance mm -hmm. and his incredible ability with the instrument. You know, the music, it was, I swear to God, it was the first real experience of, uh, to my mind, to heavy metal. I mean, starting with Foxy Lady and then going into Purple Haze. And, and these kind of, you know, more riff-orientated songs that had a, a real kind of, um, you know, a different, what was literally, I guess that's why the name was so befitting, you know, the Jimi Hendrix experience, because... Yeah. I was certainly experiencing something that w wasn't available elsewhere, whereas before then I was listening to any bands that weren't pretty looking or, you know, um, musically something that just had some ingredients, you know, maybe early kinks, very early stones. You know, I talk about, you know, um, me trying to find something that was very difficult to find, but when I had kind of samples of it, you know, uh, and Hendrix kind of had that in more of an, in, in, an abundance than, than anyone else, you know. Sure. Um, but, um, yeah, you just had to be there to see it and believe it, really, because Hendrix, when he wanted to really turn it on, it, you know, in real life, 
it really did have a, an incredible effect on the audience, you know, right. uh, where people would rush the stage, people would jump from balconies. I was there, I saw, saw it all, and I was one of those people, you know. Yeah, and it's, it's great, you know, to hear that through your eyes, you know, because so many people, I think, you know, felt a similar experience when, when the priest would come to town. You know, it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're coming to my town. I remember feeling that way, and you know, in the 1980s when you guys were rolling into the town. It was like, wow, I can't believe Judas Priest is coming to my town. And, uh, you know, it's it's neat to feel that. Um, one of the things that Judas Priest, I think, did that I think many other bands kind of shied away from, I know, you know, Motorhead, you know, Lemmy went to his grave saying, you know, they played rock and roll. Sabbath really never embraced heavy metal. But what what was it about Priest that just said, you know, we're going to wave the flag for metal, you know? Critics be damned, we're a metal band. Was that a conscious, you know, did you guys ever talk about that? Um, not really. Um, I guess we, um, having been very, very fortunate, born in 1951, not only to have been a part of music, musically evolution as we know it now, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's just I feel I'm so fortunate to have been born when I when I was you know to have uh, experienced everything um, but the evolution you know I guess it started really with blues and then it became um, you know progressive blues and then it became uh, rock and then you know then it became hard rock heavy rock and then someone coined the phrase heavy metal um, and someone did a review on Judas Priest uh, in an English magazine, I think, uh, English newspaper, and has said, uh, referred to us as being heavy metal. And I thought, you know what, that that really that tag there, I'm quite proud of that. That sounds yeah. like you know, I, I want to be a part of that, you know, and um, and so it was kind of always consciously or subconsciously in my mind that. We could at some point get rid of the denims and get rid of the satins and uh, what other materials that we had, you know. And uh, eventually, you know, um, it just came about to to introduce the, you know, the leather look and the studs and combined with the tag heavy metal and it and it all came around, you know, um, to us at a special time and special moment and. By the time the album British Steel was there, we had literally heavy metal, British Steel, the leather, the studs, right. the look, you know, the motorbike, the, you know, the razor blade image, and um, uh, and I guess the rest is pretty much history. Yeah, yeah, it was just, um, you know, it was always interesting how some of the, you know, the deep purples and, and bands like that seemed to to want to distance themselves from that that. that uh, moniker of a heavy metal band, and you guys embraced it, and really, I think in a lot of minds, typified it, you know, which is fantastic, yeah. you know. But you, when you listen to a song like, you know, I think it was uh, Hammer and the Anvil from Painkiller that you know has that metal thumping. It's, it just fits, you know. Yeah, well, I say the big thing for us, it's you know, it really was synonymous with uh, <coughs> who we were and where we'd grown up and mm. everything, you know, in the industrial area and. Um, and there's uh, a lot to be said for a lot of things that can come out of, you know, metal sounds, you know. Right. Um, and it's it just 
it's it's inspirational really to mm. to be a part of that and to to warm to that and um and if that set aside um set us aside from the majority of bands then that was only a good thing you know so it only helped uh, the uniqueness of uh, sure. Judas Priest one of the things in the book uh, I noticed, um, you know, you touch on all the albums, all the you know the touring periods, but it seemed to me that there was a little bit of extra attention to the Turbo album. Um, looking back, would you classify that I'm obviously quite a commercial success? Was it creatively? Would you have done that album again? I mean, it, you know, it always seemed to be the one album out of the whole catalog that maybe polarized fans. Do you have yeah. any regrets on that album? No, I don't. I, I really don't think so because you know what I would like uh, the fans to. For Judas Priest, we were different to a lot of bands. Where a lot of bands kind of stuck to their guns, you know, as to what they do. With, with mm. Priest, we were always there, pushing the boundaries of what we did, you know, uh, musically, so as to gain a, a wider acceptance into, you know, the world of of metal and. Um, you know, which I think, you know, was, you know, uh, kind of say instrumental really to assist other bands and, and the music in general, whether it's, you know, Saxon Maiden, Motorhead, etc. you know, uh, you know, Accept, Warlock, so many other bands, you know, and uh, to say, yeah, it's okay, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine to be metal because there's a massive audience out there, mm -hmm. you know, that, that really do like and, and want what we do um, but you know I mean the Turbo album started off as a double album and um, really and um, and then the time was just you know there we were mid 80s it was all everybody remembers what it was like Yeah. you know it was uh, big hair days it was you know it was you know all, everything that we did rock and metal um, uh, kind of married together a lot closer in those, in those at that time you know so it was perfectly fine to see Judas Priest on stage with um, you know with any other band really you mm -hmm. know um, and, and, it, and it was good you know you could have Judas, Ra Judas Priest and Rat or Judas Priest and Alice Cooper Judas Priest and even Poison whatever you know right. it kind of all worked in the mid eighties it was all together, it was all a good show. Um and uh and that's the way that it was. Uh but when we started to piece the album together, you know, it was just seemed like uh the right time to do an album like that and what happened was it was very successful. I think some of the diehard fans we may have uh you know, you lose some, but you gain some, which is not what we really wanted to do, because Priest was always a band that always wanted to gain. Sure. You know, but everything you do is a learning curve, you know. Um, we realized that the audiences were, you know, a lot more female, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, if you watch video videos of that particular tour and stuff. But what I do like about that particular time and the tour is if you listen to Priest Live, for example, which is a double live album, so that album will have a lot of other Priest stuff on there as well. The way all the songs work really, really well together, you know, um, 
is great and even now I think the guys are probably out there playing Turbo Lover now and uh, yeah, yeah. and it goes down great in the set you know yeah so yeah. Um, and um, and a lot of good stuff on that record but um, you know the points taken we put the record together um, but after that we probably we, I think it's fair to say we did another U-turn and, and did ram it, ram it down and painkiller back to back yeah, and those you know, were, I was just going to say the, the the other album that I think really fit the era that it came out extremely well was Painkiller because had you made Turbo in 1990, they probably would have lynched you guys, you know, because the <laughs> musical tides had turned so much, and and I think so many people, you know, maybe the fan who thought, uh, you know, locked in in the video or parental guidance wasn't quite the, the Judas Priest they wanted. The second they heard the intro of Painkiller, you know, everyone's back. You know, I don't know anybody that ever walked away from Painkiller with a criticism. You know, it was yeah. just a, a brilliantly timed album. Uh, great album. In fact, in my opinion, really, um, John, I think that maybe it was just a little bit too early. Yeah. Maybe a year too early, that album. Um, because that album actually became bigger in in latter years, in you know year two or yeah. year three. The first year was, um, you know, um, it was kind of uh, a bit of a maybe a bit of a hard sell. Can I say that really? Because we did a world tour and it was massive, and you know, and we had um, Annihilator and uh, and Pantera on the bill, mm-hmm. Megadeth, Testament, all of those harder hitting bands but for Priest you know um, that album did actually get more and more acclaimed as uh, in, in, in the years just after really so yeah. but I'm glad to say it's, is it fair to say it's better to be too early than too late yeah absolutely I can't tell you how many artists who who had their debut in 1988 who uh, you know had to get second jobs if they had come out in 1986 would have been you know triple platinum so Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Time, timing is absolutely critical, isn't it? Maybe the Turbo album was a bit too late. Uh, it's hard. Yeah, that's that's you know that's a tough one to say, but it, I mean it certainly What's fit for the early? era. You know, I mean it certainly made the band. I, I know from my own perspective, you know, seeing you guys on MTV with the flashy videos, you know, really fit. You know, where some of the earlier videos, like uh, Breaking the Law, you know, by that time had looked, you know, those were a little bit uh, older looking. Um, so Turbo, you know, was really, I thought, well-timed, but, you know, that's just one humble man's opinion. Um, yeah. You mentioned in the book, and I thought one of the things near the end of the book that was kind of interesting was you talk about how you felt the band could have been bigger based upon, you know, some of the, the other members of the band's schedules, the management. Um, can you touch on that just a little bit? Yeah. It was just... Um really an observation over the years I always felt that we um, <clears throat> you see to most people Judas Priest were you know this gigantic machine you know a powerhouse and mm-hmm. and really successful but we didn't achieve in a way a lot of other bands achieved and a lot of bands you know essentially did kind of pass us in the success and an album sales ratio I mean Def Leppard would be a prime example, going sure. from a, a supporting Jewish priest to uh, selling an album that in the States did five, six million, and then the, the, the next album did nine, ten, eleven million. Yeah. And stuff like that. 
I think our biggest ever selling record in the States was Screaming for Vengeance may have done something, you know, in between two to three million maybe. Right. You know, so that kind of ratio, um, and there was lots of other bands kind of doing similar sort of things, you know. Um, even the band Quite Right, I think, had an album that was five, six million, which was, you know, double or more to, than what we we had achieved, right. you know. Um, so, who's to say, really? I think timing is very, very critical. Hence, I say that, I mean, Death Leopard do these mega-selling albums, you know, 83, 84, I'm guessing, you know, um, and uh, and we come out with a Turbo album in 85, 86, you know. Um, it's just about timing, really, as to when, uh, um, to how people how people are feeling at a certain point in a decade, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we could have, but we could have done um, a lot worse. So you know, no complaints at all. You know, I'm very, very proud of, like I say, of um, my achievement, the band's achievement. You know, um, and great, greatest respect to, uh, to not just my bandmates, um, but also obviously to all all of the fans and music lovers worldwide. Yeah, um, one of the things that obviously in the book you you obviously you know talk about some skeletons between you and, and Glenn. Um, you know, mentioned some things that Ian had said. Um, would you ever consider you know in obviously with Glenn's health conditions, they've got someone else on guitar now. If the phone were to ring or someone were to float a fiftieth anniversary, would it, would you entertain the phone call, or is it maybe oh. too soon to say? Yeah, like I say, my wish and desire is the fact that I don't know what happened. I tried to leave discreetly, quietly, mm-hmm. and you know, um, and 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 that was that was it. But you know, when things start to appear, you know, in in the press and that, I don't know how why. I don't know. Maybe it's misinterpretation, but things happen. I'm thinking, oh God, you know, this thing, the respect, this kind of mutual respect thing, seems to be drifting away. You know. Um, right. And um, it kind of gets to be like that, but my desire and wish is to, uh, my intention was hopefully, you know, uh, not burn any bridges at all because I'm, I'm of an age now where, you know, it's not a good thing, you know, to uh, to permanently burn bridges through life. Um, but like I say, life circumstances, I would lo- like dearly to be in a situation where, and I'm sure it would happen, that we can meet, you know, shake hands, you know, hugs and embraces after such a long time, you know, and um, and keep a relationship intact. And as I said before, it's um, and I know every, uh, everyone, you know, uh, you, is unanimous with me that um, you know uh, sympathise with with Glenn's condition. It's, um, it's something that uh, was uh, that. I think was surprised everyone, but um, sure. and like I said, I did. I, I heard that Glenn was in Montreal a few days ago uh, at a show, so that's good. And uh, and I'm sure that uh, everyone with me wishes him obviously all of the, uh, the, the best uh, courage and and, uh, and the best, you know. Yeah. And uh, and hopefully at some point, you know, um, like I say, um, the guys are scheduled to tour. I believe I've just heard with Ozzy next year. Yeah. In the UK, and do some big shows there, so that's a show not to be missed. 
No, not at all. Um, so um, yeah, so um, I'm I'm more than more than happy and enthusiastic that uh, that um, we'll uh, we'll have a good day um, when we eventually do get together. Yeah, hopefully it'll maybe be in Cleveland, Ohio, for example. But that's maybe a yeah, we're, we're kind kind of thinking that the. Um, the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame might have been that opportunity, but it didn't happen, sadly. But never mind. Uh, we'll we'll stuff the ballot boxes again next year, um, because you know, like I said, if there's you know the, a handful of bands that really define a genre, and Judas Priest certainly is that. Well, KK, I want to thank you again so much. Again, the new book, Heavy Duty: Days and Nights in Judas Priest, will be out September 18th from Decapo Press, and uh, we look forward to many more things from you down the road, man. Brilliant! Thank you very much for your time, John, and uh, and please and, uh, and a big thanks to uh, all the fans and wish everyone well and um, hope to see you again sometime in the future. All right, a big thank you to KK Downing again. That book, Heavy Duty Days and Nights in Judas Priest, will be out September 18th. You can get it on Amazon, get it on all the major book websites from Decapo Press. If you're a fan of heavy metal, and if you're listening to the show, most likely you're a fan of heavy metal. Uh, Judas Priest, obviously, one of the bands that kind of were first to fly the flag. You know, there's always been the argument, who was the first metal band? Was it Sabbath? Was it Deep Purple? Was it Led Zeppelin? Well, the first band that said, yes, we are metal, almost inarguably, was Judas Priest. You know, a lot of bands, part of that, you know, we're a rock and roll band. Uh, You know, look at Motorhead. Lemmy went to the grave saying they were a rock and roll band. Priest said, the hell with it, we're a metal band. Uh, and really embraced it. Uh, KK obviously was a uh, vital piece of that uh, legacy, and I think this book will open a lot of eyes. You know, what was it like inside the band? A lot of things went on inside the band, so it's really a great read. So we're going to turn our attention now to Pamela Moore, who was the voice of Sister Mary in the Operation Mindcrime albums from uh, Queensryche. She's got an album called Behind the Veil, uh, so we're going to talk to her about that album about what's going on with her solo career. Uh, also, she gives voice lessons. We talked to her about that. So I'm going to play a little bit of her, uh, one of her latest singles. is called Wi-Fi Zombie, and then we're going to talk to Pamela more. Intoxication and virus 
Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome Iron City Rocks. We have on the line joining us the incomparable Pamela Moore. How are you doing today, Pamela? I'm doing great. Thanks, John. Wonderful. You have, um, you're still relatively new, in, you know, as far as music goes these days. Uh, the Behind the Veil album has been out now since mm-hmm. the early part of May. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, one of our, one of the reasons we wanted to speak to you is to get the word out. Um, you know, I think everyone remembers your work with Queensryche um, in some of the shows they've done over the years to commemorate uh, Mind Crime. But uh, I was really, really interested in, in the kind of the material of, of your new album. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what kind of inspired some of these these tracks? Um, yeah, because we, it's, it's, I guess you would want to say it's my sophomore album, sophomore metal yeah. album. Sure. Uh, we, I did release uh, Resurrect Me with uh, Rat Pack Records in 2013. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> it was, it was received um, quite favor- favorably, which made me happy. Um, the new album was supposed to be out about a, a year ago, if not more than that. And um, during the time of the album, uh, my mom passed away just okay. very suddenly. And we were writing, and not all the songs were really... Some of the songs were already done, and we were still writing the, re- the last half of it. And so it kind of put a, a wrench in things as far as a timeline Certainly. getting out the way that we were supposed to. Um, the album, I was just talking to Michael Posh because he's m- one of my uh, <clears throat> co-conspirators in this whole thing, and he's written most of the uh, work on the album with me, as he did with Resurrect Me. And we were talking about it just yesterday, and, you know, it's I'm really proud of it. Um, it's got a lot of depth to it. And it's in a way I would almost call it a conceptual album, even though I didn't set forth to have that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of references to where I was at, actually. Um, you know, emotionally, seeing the passing of my mother now, mm-hmm. and how that happened, and then you know, it really kind of reflects on you too, and and mortality and. You know what happens? Where did they go? You know, yeah. you know. A lot of people have faith in in certain things, but it's like that situation. And then also the, you know, uh, the climate of some of my other musician friends. They were going through some conflicts as well. So there was a, there's a lot of uh, intense depth in into it. Um, yeah. Plus we have some really uh, wonderful. Uh, we have a great rhythm section that agreed to uh, play on the album, and that was Rudy Sarzo playing bass and then uh, Casey Grillo playing drums and I've always wanted to work with both those guys so to have them on this album meant a lot to me too Yeah. Um, but the material itself is, is pretty you know there's a little bit longer songs and it's got intros and uh, it kind of takes you on this little excursion so to speak mm-hmm. and um, and I'm very very happy with that I think it sounds sonically it sounds really good um, it's just that it's a lot more you know, reflective, I would say. Yeah. You know, and a lot more personal. It's probably one of my most personable, personal, excuse me, work that I've ever done kind of puts my heart out on a sleeve, but I find that that's very therapeutic. And then a lot of the cases, when you're honest like that, it really does help other people too. So I'm hoping that it's twofold. Yeah, that, that's a great point you bring up. You hear a lot of that, you know, from people who write. Uh, I remember talking to Taria about uh, some music she did, and, mm-hmm. and you know when you put it out there, 
and then other people kind of internalize it in their own way that it can be really a special thing for an artist to hear you know what right. somebody else takes from music but in in with what you put into it emotionally and obviously this is a very difficult time um with the loss of your mother is it an album that's something that's difficult to go back and listen to do do does it stir up emotions that maybe you don't want to or is it, or does it help you it actually helps me um it doesn't stir bad things because it's mm. been 24 months now since my mom passed away so it doesn't stir up bad things it, but it it does inspire me to mm-hmm. um to realize that i've gone through a certain that kind of situation um i was very close to my mom and to have that happen so suddenly was just kind of put you back to reality and going, okay, yeah. this what is life really about and what is this for and what happens and why and what ifs and all that stuff. So it, it, it actually is therapeutic mm-hmm. and it actually does empower me in a way too. And I'm thankful for that. You know, right. I'm, I'm really thankful for that. I'm, I'm thankful that I'm able to to write, especially with the people that I'm writing with right. and, and putting out those things. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to say that it's self-absorbed, but I guess in a way in that moment I was kind of encapsulated in, in what was going on. And I think probably a lot of musicians end up doing that um, yeah. in some sort of fashion. You know, they have something that really touched them emotionally and, and the gift of being able to connect to that is going to help other people connect as well. You know? Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, it's certainly you. You can sometimes sense that when when there's such a genuine amount of emotion going into a song. I think you can feel that as a listener. Um, so that's yeah, and I, do, I, I think that a listener can also tell if it, if you're you're putting it on too. Yeah, so you really have to be careful and be very vulnerable. And I've been lately telling people that. Even though it's a scary place to be, it's a powerful place to be when mm-hmm. you're just wide open. You know? Yeah, I had <laughs> and, often. Um, so it's uh, true. <laughs> yeah, I often wondered. I, I just finished reading Jonathan Cain's book, and he enumerates so many of these great journey love songs. You know, and the uh-huh. women that he's divorced from now that he wrote those songs about. <laughs> and I often wonder, you know, is that got to be weird to get up on stage and sing this? You know, or be involved with? He doesn't sing them, obviously, but you know, to perform these love songs. For people you're not with anymore, um, you know, and I often wonder right. that, you know, when when you know you mentioned the subject matter of yours, or sometimes that doesn't stir emotions, but you know, it certainly well, you can feel the emotion going into it, and I think that makes for a very special recording. Yeah, and I think that songs after years of a specific thing that was in your head at that mm-hmm. time when you were recording it, I think over the years you should be learning some kind of life lesson from it. Yeah, you know. And and then they kind of morph into maybe something a little bit different. I mean, sometimes songs meanings will change for me, you know. Right. And in what was supposed to be a oh screw you type of song is right. like oh cool I'm empowered. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting with how different artists will approach certain things. But with me, it's kind of like my heart's on my sleeve all the time, and it's where I'm at, you know, as far as you know, emotionally and physically and it, mm-hmm. and um so that's kind of it for me I, I it's hard for me to just kind of write a song just because i have to write a song today you know yeah and um, some people have the gift of being able to do that but for me i have to have a 
um, a connection to it at some point or yeah. some kind of inspiration for it at some point. Yeah, mm. I'm always envious of those people, like you mentioned, that, that can just be determined they're going to produce a song in a certain period of time. I can't tell you how many times we talk to artists who say, well, we have 10 days scheduled in February to, to make a new album. Do you have material written for that? No, we're going to write it then. Like, you know, that's really know, working with a gun to your head. I don't know how you know. <laughs> I know. It's just some people who just really have their stuff together and they can do it. And yeah. Sometimes that backfires on you, too. You know, yeah. if you're, I don't know, but, you know, it's just people are wired differently. And that's the beauty about our, you know, the nature of the human condition. And that's what I love writing about, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Now, do you have um, plans to take this on the road? Um, has that been something that you have done any live shows, or are you planning on taking it into the road into the fall? Yes. Um, we've been actually uh, searching for some people. That, a lot of the booking agents right now are super busy mm-hmm. because we have a lot of, of people that are packing up their van and going out and yeah. you know making money promoting what they're doing, uh, mainly, I believe, because of the nature of the business has changed so much, you know, you're not getting a whole lot of royalty checks, (laughs) so I believe that a lot of my uh, uh, more established friends are, you know, getting booked a lot quicker (laughs) than me. But uh, we are still in search. In fact, I just put a post up today asking for people to send me um, some contacts of people that are regional so Mm -hmm. we can do some shows. But uh, I've got the band ready to go. We did a really fun um, CD release party uh, a few months back, and it was very successful. Um, We played the album in its entirety, and the the new set has a lot of songs of the new stuff, but also... Uh, the favorites of the older album as well from Resurrect Me. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it really sounds really good. Um, and I'm just aching to get out there. Um, we probably won't be doing like a designated tour because right. a lot of my musicians, as well as myself, um, don't really have time to be able to do something like that unless it was a, a huge, you know, money right. event. Yeah. You know? But in this situation, we just want to play the songs and get out there and see the people and we didn't get to do that too much when we were um, when I had resurrect me so I'm ready and willing so if anybody hears this Tell them to get a hold of me. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. That's that's it. it you're, you're absolutely right, though. I mean, the music industry has changed so much. Uh, you know, in the time you've been involved, you, know, you used to make an album and you did the tour to promote the album. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, the you had videos that would be in heavy rotation on television, uh, which is a yeah. you know totally different medium now. You get like a quarter of a penny if someone watches your video and sits through a commercial. <laughs> um, you know, and then right. you know, touring is not cheap. You know, you know the only no. Blessing is that the actual recording process, in some ways, has maybe gotten a little less expensive. But you know, the marketing, right. the, the booking, and all that stuff that costs money isn't getting any cheaper. Um, so it's, right, right, and and it's it's easier now to be able to um, record because you can send files back and forth mm-hmm. to different people. Um, you know, I, I this is um this is a self release, so it you know, and I'm not a rich woman to say the least. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my money has gone towards that, um, and then we just released an, a video, and I need to get another one out. But it's a little bit difficult um, to do that, you know, when you have to have resources to pay your bills and other yeah. stuff too. Um, and and marketing is so important. 
Yeah. And you really, you know, I have a kind of a a better idea, even though I knew in the past about record labels and how much money they would put out mm-hmm. to make a band happen. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of resources that had to go out to that. Yeah. And then once they were able to get those bands established, you know, then a lot of money started coming in for them. For them, yes, not for the artists. So I, I, I certainly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, I totally understand all of that. Yeah. And then now, you know, it's, it's a whole different marketing ball game because you've yeah. got, you know, something that I used to have a lot more disdain to, I kind of have to appreciate would be with Spotify and and you know, Razzy and all these download sites, you can make money on it, but you have yeah. to really work at getting placed on playlists, and it's a whole different yeah. golf game. It's just like a whole other job. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's 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 almost you know, instead of needing an an R guy, you need an IT guy um, in some respects yeah. for some of yeah. the stuff because you know, there's. You know the the marketing through social media, which is you know a bit of an art form, and it's intimidating for you know for people yeah. to sit down and don't understand what they're doing. You know you can throw exactly. money away, especially quite people quick. like me who are, who are used to the olden days, old school days. Yeah, you know, find a label, go outside that. You know, yeah. you go out and tour and all this stuff. So it is a very different ballgame, and I'm finding that too. Um, I have a vocal and performance coaching business, and mm-hmm. a lot of my really talented students are not releasing albums. Mm. They are releasing singles, you know? Yeah. And they're promoting those. And yeah. and it's like, wow. <laughs> it's just hard for me to wrap around my head around it, but it's the way of the, the future at the moment. So Yeah, yeah. I ho- I don't know if I hope it's the way of the future, but it's certainly the way of the current and it's it's you know, I think for those of us yeah. who've been around well, that, for right. a while it's hard to 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 get our head around, you know. But you you even hear, you know, artists of you know, your generation, my generation, saying, I'm not going to do another album, I'm just going to release some singles, or it's, or, or worse yet, I'm not going to bother mm-hmm. doing a new album because there's not enough to recoup the cost. Um, and yeah, that's, know. you know, yeah. disheartening. Um, can you talk a little bit, for those who might be interested in, in your vocal business, is that something you do via Skype, or is that something that you need to be, you know, physically present? Um, it's both. Uh I started it almost 10 years ago now as kind of a supplemental type of thing because I was doing a bit more touring Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of evolved into a really wonderful kind of like day job but I I think of it every day as not really a job because I I really love working with my students Um, it's kind of passing on the baton so to speak Mm -hmm. and it's wonderful to see them grow as far as a singer it's wonderful for me because I learn a lot about myself and it keeps my voice in shape because right. I'm singing as well, yeah. showing them different things. Um, but I do both. I have a lot of in-person stuff that I do and then I also do um, Skype lessons. Uh, a lot of people just do Skype, but um, it, it's kind of nice for me to be able to be right in front of them if sure. it's possible. Um, it takes more of my time, certainly, but... At least I can see, I can see what they're doing and how they're maneuvering through uh, mm-hmm. their breaks and stuff like that. So um, it's been really it's been a challenge, but I have to tell you it's it's really satisfying and it almost mm-hmm. brings me to tears sometimes when I see uh, young girls say that come in they sing at thirteen they're graduated you know and their voices have just blossomed you right. know and it, it's just 
it's a real satisfying um, for, for, job that I have, and I really enjoy it. For those of you, or for those who might be listening, is there an age at which singing is is too soon to start, or, or what do you recommend? I, I often think of that because you see kids, you know, little tiny kids being put into you know talent competitions and stuff that. You know, and I often wonder is that being that this is a muscle and you know a physical skill, is that mm-hmm. are, are parents pushing that too hard? I mean, we do seem to be a generation of parents that push the heck out of kids, or is there is it yeah, better no. to get started early? God, that's a that's a good question because it really depends on the child. I would think mm-hmm. too. Of course, you know, the child's going to depend on the parent and there has been situations where parents are just pushing, pushing, pushing too much. Mm. But you know, you see child so I mean, look at Bruno Mars. I mean yeah. he was a I think he won some kind of contest when he was just a little kid, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's an amazing talent. Um so I suppose that it would have to be where the child is, you know, in their growth. There's a lot mm. of I had one student that was a few years ago now, but she was only six and I, I was like, I don't know I, I, you know, I don't know if I can do this because she's so young, and right. I don't teach music theory, and I don't do this. But she came in, and she had perfect pitch. She was um, just, she was a delight, and she knew how to harmonize just on pitch. And I'm looking at her, going, "How are you doing this?" Yeah. You know? I haven't talked to her for so long, but she obviously was someone that, if you see this nature with them, that they're that they've got this going on you want to help cultivate it and see if they take it and run with it mm-hmm. but I don't think you want to hammer it down their throats either I think, right. it's, I think it's probably more kind of a case by case type of thing okay. you know Excellent. I don't know and and there are times when maybe kids get burnt out and I've known some that have amazing voices and they could do really really well but they just aren't into it and it's like okay mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that's right yeah. I mean it's up to them, really. The uh, the students that you teach now, I mean, do do many of them know who you are? I mean, you know, obviously our audiences. I don't know, I even have to say who you, you know, they know from the <laughs> voice. But uh, do 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 you get kids who come in and just have no idea who you are? You know, you know, some lady yeah. that's going. A lot of kids don't know who I am. A lot of the parents don't know because I get a lot of um, uh, like per you know, people getting referrals out. Not something where I don't like advertise it or anything. Sure. Um, I do advertisements do show me performing. They can Google me and find out. And so sure. there's a lot of parents that you know after I've been with working with their their child for a while, they'll go, "Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. I realize that you did this." And I'm like, "Yeah," because I don't. I mean, obviously, I I tell them. You know, if you want to know my credentials, you can just go online. You can look at it on my website. You can see what I've done. Yeah. And a lot of parents will do that because they are concerned that they want to make sure their child is getting the right care that they want. Right. But a lot of kids don't. And I've had testimonials from kids that, you know, have said, did, you know, did Pamela's experience, uh, you know, influence you wanting to work with her? And one of the girls said, what? What yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't know that. So um, it obviously helped. And I haven't really worked with Queensrick for a very long time. Sure. So, um, you know, that's probably not in people's minds right now because there's a generation that's kind of pulling over into the teen years now, you know. Yeah. So, um, but 
it obviously I feel that it's a good credential to have. Yeah. You know, I, if I was going to want to learn how to sing a specific kind of genre like pop or rock mm-hmm. or something, um, I'd want to go to somebody who's done it before. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to go to somebody who hasn't ever sang before or hasn't performed before. Um, it's just like if I was going to go to a doctor, I'd, you'd like, like to go to a doctor to, that is specializes in, in what you, need. you know, girl parts instead of you know, sure. somebody who doesn't have them. So, you know, what I'm talking about. So, so I think it really helps, and it, it helps me be able to bring a little bit more um, insight into, you know, the overall picture. You know, here's here's how you sing, but here's overall what what happens. Sure. You know, and then that kind of gives them a foot up if they decide they want to keep going. You know. Well, fantastic, Pamela. I want to thank you so much again. The new album, Behind the Veil, is available now. It's mm-hmm. uh, you can check out your website. It's available on iTunes, etc. And and hopefully we'll see you uh, you know in in the Western Pennsylvania, Ohio area at some point soon. And uh, oh, I hope to... so. I'm working on it. <laughs> awesome. I'm working on it. All right, well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks, John. Take care. All right, a big thank you to Pamela Moore. Again, you can check out her newest album, Behind the Veil. Uh, You can head over to PamelaMoore.net for more information on what she's going on. Uh, Really a a great voice. Uh, You know, I think many of us who grew up just listening to Operation Mindcrime, you know, start to finish constantly. You know, her voice will always hold a special place in our brain. Uh, so get over and check that out to uh, support the things she's got going on. We're going to turn our attention now to a, a great young band called Everyone Hates Everything. Uh, very extreme sound, uh, you know, not the operatic voices that uh, maybe Pamela Moore has, but uh, no, no less uh, aggressive. Uh, they've got a really cool album out. So we're going to play a song for them called The Ninth Hour of Friday. We're going to get an interview with their vocalist, Paul Lowe.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is John with Iron City Rocks. Pleased to welcome to the show we have Paul Lowe of Everyone Hates Everything on the line. How are you doing, Paul? Doing excellent. Um, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, you have been, uh, I know, a very strong supporter of Iron City Rocks, and uh, you've got a really uh, slamming metal band uh, that I had a chance to listen to. So can you tell me a little bit about... Um, you know, the music we'll listen to is, is pretty beautiful. We had a chance to listen to it leading into this interview. Um, but, you know, what you guys kind of, what the mission of the band is? Uh, let's see. Uh, we started off um, around, let's see, the band fully formed, I would say, around March of 2016. Uh, we later put out just a really small EP, just a teaser uh, that we recorded in-house. And uh, it doesn't really sound great, but we just wanted music out there for people. Sure people to hear but uh we're a five piece um i would say early uh metalcore sound mm -hmm. is, is what we're going for all uh um as i lay dying uh bleeding through um just essentially those bands of the early to mid 2000s that that brought metalcore around you know we're essentially a chuggy breakdowns you know not not overdoing it with the breakdowns but you know we like to add some melody in there mm -hmm. as well and, uh, and I would imagine you can even classify us partially with some of the songs uh, would be death metal mm -hmm. but um, but a lot of the music let's see lyrically um, I like to I myself am a uh, I go to therapy you know all kinds of I have a pretty big issue with uh, depression mental mm -hmm. illness uh, bipolar uh, mm -hmm. uh, even suicidal at times and uh a lot of my lyrics are very um, pinpoint to my own um, struggles, whatnot, sure. with the illness, and uh, just essentially lyrically, I try to put it out there to let everyone know that you know, even you know, people that you enjoy, people that you see on stage, you know, everyone has this kind of problem, and you know, I just like to bring it to the forefront because you know, it's I, I always like to call it the uh, depression and this kind of mental illness the silent killer because yeah. you know, no one essentially really talks about it and uh, nowadays you're seeing seeing it be much more prevalent unfortunately uh, in the music world with all the deaths and yeah. whatnot yeah, it, it is unfortunate it's extremely brave to, you know, to kind of put yourself out there I think a lot of people you know, aside from some of the early 90s kind of grunge music people didn't sing about that kind of stuff you know um, exactly. and, and to, to to stand on a stage and say, you know, you know, I, I'm a man with these, you know, I have these, these struggles. Do you get a lot of people who then come to you and say, hey, you know, thank you for, for you know, pulling back the curtain and having the courage to say that? You know, I, you I, I do. I've, I've played uh, many a shows, bunch with um, even touring bands that are coming through town. You know, that will catch my set, and uh, you know, I always. Or chat after the show, you know, I would be more than willing or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, privately, you know, on Facebook if that is their uh, preference. And there, there has been many people, bands and bands included, um, some, some larger bands included, you know, that will sit there and talk and private message each other, you know, at our, at our leisure, you know, as, as far as schedules go. But um, we'll sit there and, you know, and have in-depth discussions. I've spoke with people on the phone, uh, I had an individual call me that I had never met before, mm -hmm. uh, and was, you know, it 
it seemed to me on the verge of uh of doing harm to himself and uh we sat there and talked you know close to an hour cried together and it was uh mm-hmm. it was a really beautiful thing and you know if if i can touch one person's life like that then you know the music and all that it, it's well worth it yeah and, and that's it's an interesting thing because you're putting it you know i think a lot of people who you mentioned you know i know growing up people with problems it was something you kept bottled up inside or hidden away um you know growing up in the 80s no one sang about anything you know close to that um but to have that kind of outlet and to come in a medium you know of metal metal core that you enjoy you know maybe take some of the stigma away you know if these guys can do this you know and and in in a way where it's proactive for maybe lack of a better word but you know we're not talking about your lyrics after you're gone you know we're talking about them here in the now while you're you know you're you're coping and dealing with with things so hopefully you know that speaks to um you know maybe somebody out there and that's a wonderful way to look at it you know if you can touch one person help one person that's you know that's a, that's a lofty goal you know even you know musicians you know you write great songs you want people to love your songs but helping them through something personal is even maybe maybe a stronger goal right and, and you know the the people that you know seem the most okay or you know are trying to so hard to to you know get other people to to feel well are actually mm-hmm. in fact usually the ones that are struggling the most yeah yeah and it certainly is you know and it's it's a wonderful thing with it with the genre of metal because you know it's it's a it's a genre that a lot of people i think get into in a time in their lives when they're going through a lot of you know a lot of people get into in the early teens mid-teens you know where there's a tremendous amount of social pressure and, and things that you deal with just isn't perfectly healthy teenager there's a lot to deal with um you know but then trying to cope with with um, an illness at the same time mind-boggling um can you talk a little bit uh, musically um you know when you guys write do you, you write those you also are the guitarist correct uh, no, no, I'm solely I'm uh, solely vocals. Uh, okay. Two guitar players, bass player, and a drummer. So when you guys put together a song, I mean, your 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 songs, you know, incredibly drum centric. You know, for the outside listener, um, do you tend to write lyrics first, or do you put the, you know, maybe get get everyone in the room, get the song, and then you go back and listen to a recording of it, or do scats, or how do you you know kind of piece that all together? Uh, as far as the putting a song together usually our craft uh is you know, we, we like to do it um old school you know as of all uh, the old metal bands you know even mm-hmm. zeppelin and sabbath and you mm-hmm. know we will we'll come to the table with a bunch of riffs whether it's uh and everyone's contributed uh on the album as far as riff wise uh you'll come to the table with a few riffs maybe that thought would uh would work out and um Essentially, we build a, build the song upon that riff, build drum pieces to that. Mm-hmm. Listens to everyone's ear as to you know where they think the song should go. I I, I myself was a drummer for you know sixteen seventeen years in mm-hmm. bands uh, in Pittsburgh, and uh, so I, uh, it's it's nice to have two drummers in a band because he may struggle with one thing where I hear it better, and, and vice versa. And we have you know two ways of hearing it. It's, it's always nice nice, but uh. I would say we're riff 
riff oriented and then uh, everything falls into place from there and I usually do not write lyrics until uh, the song is essentially complete mm-hmm. now two drummers I think of I mean, as soon as you said that I think of uh, Joey Kramer and Steven Tyler fighting uh, you know you watch some of the behind the scenes <laughs> right. studio stuff do you, do you find yourself sometimes yeah. having to just bite your lip and okay, let him do his thing he's the drummer now I'm the singer you know because you don't want him telling you how to sing um, does that happen uh, yes, I think it was unavoidable, but luckily um, the drummer and I were um, graduates of uh, Baldwin High School here in Pittsburgh, and uh, mm. we've known each other for uh, for over 20 years now, and uh, this is actually the first project we've played together in, which is exciting. Uh, I don't know how we avoided it that long, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, that's definitely come across where I hear, you know, okay, this part, you know, this is definitely what which be played right there and you know he'll he'll spin it around because you know he's i'm more of a classic rock drummer as you know to where he's more of a technical drummer so yeah so instantly you know our our ears are different but uh i i try to uh definitely uh let him do his thing as that's his instrument and we've all seen it in many bands before so mm-hmm. uh it doesn't work when you start internal arguing <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Nothing ruins a band quicker. Um, can you talk a little bit, you know, being a band in Pittsburgh, um, there's been much in the media in the last year about, you know, the overall health of the Pittsburgh music climate. Um, can you talk, as a, as a you know, kind of an extreme metal band, what it's like from your eyes as far as, you know, how are the, you know, fans and clubs, is it, is it, a struggle like it had been five years ago is it worse than it was five years ago um you know can you take us through what your perception of of pittsburgh is right now well i would say as far as uh the the local scene itself and how it goes to play i mean essentially your your big two uh or your big go-to is mr smalls presents Mm -hmm. and of course dresky and uh i've worked with um dresky and now that Josh is over at Mr. Smalls. I've worked mm-hmm. with him for years. I have a pretty good rapport. Mm-hmm. But as far as, you know, another band that may not have a good rapport, uh, they usually give you a chance, you know, and essentially the name of that game is sell tickets, sell tickets, sure. sell tickets. So, um, you know, that's what they want you to do. Um, younger bands, uh, I've taken a few bands that, you know, are just starting off. They're in their early 20s. They don't know how the scene works. I've taken a couple bands that I really enjoy, uh, sort of under my wing, and you know, try to explain the the politics of 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 all that. But uh, I w- I would definitely say the the scene is is around the same it was. Um, okay. As far as you know, local music, you gotta you gotta sell the tickets to to play the big shows, mm-hmm. and um, essentially. As long as I've been playing music, that's that's how it's been. That's um, how I don't I don't honestly see it changing uh, anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the name of the game, and uh, as, as you learn to, you know, you might not like it, but if you just play the game the way the game's supposed to be played, you know, um, yeah. I would say more things are are brought to you. You know, we right. a lot of times we'll have. Um, them reach out to us for shows, you know, yeah. the way we're a good ticket seller, a good follower, and whatnot. Right. Something to be said for not thumbing your nose at the way it is. Um, 
Now, in, right. in a ba- band such as yours, I mean, you, you mentioned playing classic rock, um, you know, even more mainstream metal. Um, bands can get away with a lot of covers, you know, if they don't necessarily True. want to do the, you know, the opening slot for, you know, a Sepultura or something like that. But if you, in a situation like yours, I don't see you guys doing, you know, just from listening to your music, I don't see you doing Skinner covers and things like that to play at a, a you know, a bar. Um, you know, on a Saturday. No. Um, does that? Do you feel that that in a way differentiates you from some of those bands? Maybe leads you not into the temptation of of just getting into doing covers, or uh, does it make it harder well, because uh, of the type of music? Um, th- that's another thing I think you have to take uh, with a grain of salt. I would mm-hmm. say uh, I, I I don't honestly think there's you know really any money i mean if you're if you're going into being a local original band and you know right. you think they're gonna play in these places eventually start making all this money right. that's you know unfortunately a, a pipe dream you know there's really not much money in original metal music right. in in pittsburgh but um as far as cover bands i do one on the side myself i'm in three mm. different projects currently and uh i do a 90s um alternative cover band right uh as well, and you know, we make uh, you know a decent amount of money playing you know three hours, all the hits exactly know, from the nineties, right? And that's what that's I think. But you know, as long as you you take it for what it is, and you're you know willing to accept exactly what mm-hmm. it's going to be, I mean, I, I it's I'm a firm believer of that. <laughs> Sure. No, and that, that's exactly I think what I was, you know where I was headed with that was you know in the type of music that everyone hates everything does you know it's it doesn't lend itself to to doing a three hour set at uh, you know uh, the local watering hole for you know people just want to enjoy their Saturday night. It's more of a of an event type of band. You're gonna you know get yourselves in front of you know this metal crowd who came to see whomever and, and hope some of those people catch on to your type of music, which. Which you know is certainly doable, but I think is even even some of the most successful metal artists will tell you if you're in for the money, go do something else. You know exactly, and you know and even even on as far as the times too, you know Metallica and, and Slayer mm-hmm. and all them, you know they're playing you know seventy to seventy five minute sets, mm-hmm. ninety minutes tops. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but they're they're and lucky that, enough to be making money, but there's a lot of a lot of named metal musicians who, you know, you still see putting guitars on eBay and, and you know, doing every meet and greet they can to pay the mortgage. You know, it's, it's Yeah, and that seems to be the more popular thing now, the, yeah. the meet and greet thing. I was I did it a few years back with a um, big um Phil Anselmo fan from Pantera. Mm-hmm. You know, Pantera was, was one of my, you know, gateways into uh one of the gateway bands into heavy music and, you know, always loved their projects, especially loved uh down when he got together with uh, mm-hmm. Kurt Weinstein and um, uh, Pepper Keenan from COC, you know, that was another one of my favorite groups and I got to see a, uh, a VIP and did a meet and greet with Down and it was, you know, for 35 year old me, you know, I instantly yeah. turned into 14 year old me and was like, oh my god, I meet Phil Selvo and yeah. Pepper Keenan and Jim Power and then it was amazing, I, I definitely have no problem paying a little extra for a meet and greet to meet your heroes, you know, it's, yeah. The the days of the days of going to National Record Mart and uh, and seeing your band you know sign an album there are are long gone. Long yeah, long long gone. You can <laughs> order it from Amazon and pay an extra thirty five dollars to have somebody sign it, but 
who knows who it is. Right. But yeah, exactly. Well, well, that's fantastic, Paul. I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, can you tell folks where they can find more on your band? Um, yes, we are. Everyone hates everything. Our five piece out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, you can find our music on all streaming sites: Apple, uh, Spotify. Essentially, uh, we're on Bandcamp as well. Most of those links are on our Facebook page. We have a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we do all that stuff because that's what the, the kids do nowadays. And uh, we should be dropping our brand new album, uh, "Holding a Hand of Death," um, late September, probably the week before. Uh, we're going to play with Zayo out of the Rex Theater. We should be dropping the album right around there. Awesome, well, Paul. I want to thank you so much. I wish you guys all the best, man. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for having me. All right, again, a big thank you to Paul of Everyone Hates Everything. You can check out their website. Uh, you can go to our website. We'll have a link for that in the show notes. Also, Pamela Moore, PamelaMoore.net. Uh, check out her new album. And, of course, K.K. Downing, a uh, man who needs no introduction to metal fans, uh, founder of you know the legendary Judas Priest. New book, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest, will be out September 18th. Get it on Amazon, get it on Barnes & Noble, get it wherever you need to get it. Get a copy, though. Um, you know, if you love metal, you're going to love this book. So check that out. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, are all forward slash ironcityrocks. And you can drop us an email at ironcityrocks at gmail.com, or you can use the contact link on our homepage. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about the show, what you hate about the show, ideas for future episodes, whatever. Just drop us a line. And until next time, we want to thank you for listening.